It's the middle of January, the darkest, coldest, and most depressing time of year in Alaska. The days are short, maybe five hours at the most, and it's a yearly cycle that takes some getting used to, even for the most grizzled of Alaskan residents. In fact, one of the tricks Alaskans use to get through the long winters is to stay busy, and that's exactly what I'm doing tonight, studying up on the history of Alaskan cold cases. Although my main interest lies in trying to understand the unsolved disappearance of Aaron Gilbert, tonight I'm looking into cold cases in Alaska that have been solved. Soldatna, Alaska, is a pass-through town on the drive from Anchorage to Homer. Settled after World War II, Soldatna was selected as the site for where the Sterling Highway Bridge would cross the Kenai River. After oil was discovered at the nearby Swanson River in 1957, Soldatna started to grow, and in 1960, the settlement was incorporated into a city. But oil wasn't the only draw to this otherwise small town, Indeed, the Kenai River, which flows through the middle of Soldatna, is one of the world's most famous salmon streams, drawing thousands of local anglers and tourists each summer. In fact, it was on this river, on May 17, 1985, that local car dealership owner, Les Anderson, hooked into a mighty king salmon that would give him the fight of a lifetime. By the time he landed the fish, he'd set the world record for the largest king salmon ever caught, 97 pounds. But as the town celebrated this historic feat, residents were also wrestling with a recent crime, one that was much darker than the murky waters of the Kenai River. A few months before, on March 20th to be exact, a 65-year-old woman named Opal Fairchild was found dead in her home. She'd been shot once in the head, the victim of an apparent robbery gone bad. Although authorities in 1985 initially found latent fingerprints at the scene of the crime, they were unable to match them to an individual, and the case soon went cold, where it would remain for 15 years. But in the year 2000, the fingerprints were resubmitted to the crime lab for identification, and to law enforcement's surprise, a match was made to a man named Barry McCormick. Although McCormick was living in Oklahoma in 2000, he'd been a resident of Soldatna in 1985, and his fingerprints were matched to an additional string of violent crimes that occurred around the time of Opal Fairchild's murder. But even though law enforcement felt like they were closing in on their man, the case was slow to move forward. But then, in 2002, the Alaska State Troopers created the Cold Case Investigation Unit. 
Comprised of seasoned investigators from around the state, the cold case unit started looking into approximately 100 unsolved cases dating all the way back to the 1960s, and Opal Fairchild's case was at the top of the list. Working as a team, the cold case unit made multiple trips to Oklahoma in the following months, interviewing McCormick and working with local law enforcement. Finally, on March 21, 2003, almost exactly 18 years after Fairchild's murder, McCormick was indicted by a grand jury on murder charges. Since that time, the cold case unit has gone on to solve multiple cases in Alaska, offering a glimmer of hope to families, friends, and communities looking for justice. Although the unit has recently been hit by a deluge of budgetary constraints, it continues to forge ahead, despite currently being manned by a lone detective. But as this Friday night drags on into the early hours of Saturday morning, my thoughts move away from cases that have been solved and back to the case that's haunted me for the last nine months. What happened to Erin Marie Gilbert? It's been 23 years since a young woman vanished while on a trip to Girdwood. You know, she was such a strong person. I'm sure she fought like crazy, and it really caught her off guard, whoever did this to her. Someone wants to disappear, they can do it. If someone wants to make someone disappear, they can do it. The main thing that made it stand out is she was with a man who seemed to not match up with her. We just don't know what happened to her. It's a, a number of scenarios could have transpired. You're listening to Season 1 of Alaska Unsolved. few weeks, I've found a renewed energy in looking into Aaron's case. Over the last year, I've questioned myself again and again, laying awake at night, wondering why I've put this pressure on myself to try and understand what happened to Aaron. But somehow, I've convinced myself to keep at it, and today, I'm glad I have. This has been a long road, with twists and turns leading to places that sometimes don't make me feel very comfortable but I think it's worth it to put Aaron's case in the spotlight. So I've continued to move forward. Having looked more closely at some of the details surrounding Aaron's disappearance on July 1st, 1995, it's time to follow the chain of events and try and understand more about the investigation conducted by law enforcement. So I make some phone calls, send some emails, and wade through what feels like endless amounts of red tape until finally, my persistence pays off. Yeah, my name's uh, Rainer McFerrin. Basically been with the Trooper since uh, 1986. I went through the... The voice you're hearing is that of retired Alaska State Troopers detective Randy McFerrin. McFerrin is a 30-year veteran of the Alaska State Troopers and is currently the only cold case detective assigned to the venerable cold case unit. Coincidentally, he's also in charge of Aaron Gilbert's case. McFerrin has agreed to meet with me at the Alaska Bureau of Investigation in Anchorage to talk about his career as an Alaska State Trooper, how he got involved with the cold case unit, 
as well as some of the details surrounding Aaron's case. I start by asking him to talk about how he first ended up in Alaska. Before I came to Alaska, I was in the, the Army. We deployed up here for about a month and just very intrigued, really liked Alaska, wanted to come back. Uh, I ended up leaving active duty and uh, uh, met my wife, and we both were kind of at a point in our lives where we wanted to try a little adventure. So we packed up what we had and drove up here in 84, applied for the troopers shortly after getting here, and the process took a couple of years to get, get through it all. Over the course of the last year, I've heard about Detective McFerrin through my conversations with Aaron's sister, Stephanie Juarez, and I'm glad I'm finally able to speak with him in person. That said, the room where we're meeting is what I would describe as a classic interrogation room. Flat light, plain walls, cheap soundproofing over the windows, and a slightly creepy vibe. Let's just say I'm glad I'm the one doing the interviewing today. I go on to ask Detective McFerrin to describe the history of the Alaskan cold case unit and how he first got involved. Well, uh, the unit started in, I believe, uh, 2002. There was uh, some grants from the federal government that this had to do with the establishment of the National DNA Database CODIS. Um, they were, and they just kind of generated a, an interest in re-looking at these old cases and applying the DNA technology to them. So the, the unit started in 2002. It eventually expanded into four investigators working in the unit. There were two here, and a couple in Soldatna, a couple in Anchorage, and then one in Fairbanks. And people have come and gone, depending on the circumstances in their life. Right. Um, but uh, like I said, in 2012, I retired from active service. I worked for about a year doing background investigations over at uh, Trooper Recruitment, and then a position opened up here, and so I decided to come back and work investigations. And um, I'm not sure where I've read this or, or heard this, but I, I, so it sounds like initially there was a, a sizable budget for the cold case unit, and there, there was um, some substantial resources put into that. It, I, my understanding is now that you're the only cold case Yes, I'm the only one, yes. Yeah, in 2015, uh, because of the budgetary problems, they decided to discontinue the unit. Right. Um, and there were four people working at the time, so they laid us all off. But okay. in 2017, enough funding was for one position, and they, and they asked me to come back. What's that like being the only cold case <laughs> uh, pretty investigator? Lone, kind of lonesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely could use some help, uh, but it's it's... I'm very grateful to be back. I get a lot of support from the other right. units here at ABI and from the department. So when I do need help with something, I can, I can usually get it pretty quickly. Right. But again, it'd be nice to have someone to work with, someone to carry the, the workload. But right. And we'll see. Hopefully uh, that may come to pass sooner. And, and also part of it, you know, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. So eventually I would like someone to kind of pass the torch to to keep the unit going. Um, so we'll see what the future holds there. Right. It's hard to imagine being the sole cold case detective tasked with solving cases, some of which date back over 50 years. I asked Detective McFerrin to describe his current job duties and how he maximizes his effectiveness despite limited resources. As time permits, uh, going through case files and case reports, this is stuff some of my colleagues did uh, before me, uh, I mean, obviously there's just some cases that are probably never going to get solved. Uh, for one reason or another, the evidence has been uh, lost or destroyed. 
You know, as time marches on, suspects, witnesses pass away. So there's just some cases that we've closed by, closed by exception just because for whatever reason the suspect is now deceased, uh, evidence was lost or destroyed. There's not enough, anything there to, to work with. So it's right. time to just close these out and move on and put our resources to cases we can right. potentially uh, do something with. How many uh, cold cases currently are, are open or do you have in front of you? Well, te- technically we have about 100. And there's uh, a lot of overlap with missing persons. It's, you know, there's several very suspicious missing person cases. So those kind of overlap and we get involved in some of those. But it's, it's approximately 100 cases that are it's going back to the mid-1960s. I mean, how do you prioritize a case today? What I normally do is uh, I'll, I'll go through the case report, read it, look at, you know, are there any leads that were overlooked, any potential witnesses that could be recontacted. You know, we look for things like changes in relationships. Um, you know, we, we love to talk to ex-wives and girlfriends, and, you know, they usually have a lot of information about someone. But one of the main things was is just looking at the evidence to see if there's anything that could be reanalyzed using modern technology that c- could generate some leads. So seeing if there's potential, some evidence that we could do some DNA testing on that might, you know, DNA testing wasn't until the mid late 90s before it was a, a common use. And so anything prior to that, going through the cases, looking to see, oh, maybe we should try this. Let's run this through the lab, see if, they, if it generates anything. One of, the, one of the projects I'm trying to work on is to digitize a lot of these case right. reports just so the information is a lot more usable. You know, they're basically, we're still, a lot of these cases are in paper. They're not, some of them aren't organized very well just because, you know, no one was ever prosecuted. There was no need to put the case together. So uh, I have several cases that were just, uh, you know, papers in a box. And going through that and getting rid of what duplicate stuff and getting it organized. And then, um, you know, there's been several instances where I'll get a tip, say, you know, have you looked at this guy? And I'll go through the case report after, you know, hours of looking, we find, oh, we already looked at this guy. He's already been eliminated for whatever reason. So the goal is to eventually digitize and scan, you know, all this stuff so it's a lot more user-friendly. We can just type in a name and, oh, okay, we looked at this guy. Oh, no, we didn't. So right. it's a possibility. So it sounds like a, a, a big part of your job, an important part of your job right now is almost like organizing and like administrative type Yes, work. it is, just um, to get, get these cases put together um, so that we can work with them that way and, and to learn them. You know, it, sometimes it takes, you know, months of research just to get familiar with the case, um, to, right. to know what's been done, what hasn't been done, just so you can talk intelligently to people when they come in with a, with right. a tip, you know. Um, someone calls up and, you know, there's a lot of troopers working now who weren't even born when some of these cases right. were happening. So, of course, they naturally don't, they have any idea what the individual may be talking about. So, Although I've come here today to hopefully get some insight into the details surrounding Aaron Gilbert's case, I'm also seeing this as a unique opportunity to learn more about the world of solving cold cases, particularly in Alaska. 
I asked Detective McFerrin to talk about some of the unique challenges of being a cold case detective in Alaska, as well as some of the components that make an effective investigator. It's some of the same challenges our, my colleagues face in current cases. It's just we have a long way to travel. We've got a big, big place to cover. And it takes time to get to crime scenes sometimes where the evidence can be damaged or lost or degraded and you know, makes it difficult from the get-go to find usable evidence to work with. Uh, but specifically cold case, it's just been looking at a case and then doing some digging and finding, okay, this guy's dead, you know, we, he's gone. So right. that, that's some place we can't go or finding out that some evidence has been lost or destroyed. And it's, you know, all it takes is, you know, a leaky roof or, a, uh, you know, a fire and some things can get lost. And it's, you know, it's no, it's not anybody's fault, but it just happens. You know, there's only so much storage space for evidence and things can just get damaged for whatever reason. And then once it's gone, it's gone. Maybe you've touched on this, but like, what are what are some qualities or components that make a good cold case investigator? Uh, persistence, I think, is is very important. Um, you know, it's uh, it, I forget the the guy's name in the Greek mythology that, that's pushing the boulder up the hill right. every day. Um, but uh, yeah, just being persistent, uh, attention to detail. Obviously, a good memory is helpful. Yeah. Just to, oh yeah, I remember that guy. And and, it, and it's funny after all the time I have on working active duty for all those years and all the places I've been, uh, you still a name crops up that oh yeah, I dealt with that guy 20 years ago, wow. or you know, <laughs> things wow. like that. You know, so it's it's very helpful to have a good memory. And how important is it to be to have a level of an intuitiveness in your career, in your job? Well, obviously it plays into it. I mean, there, there's a lot of cases where it's, you know, uh, circumstantial kind of situations um, where you, you do kind of have to piece things together. And, you know, the, the physical evidence may not be there, but, you know, you can follow those leads and it may lead you to something. So yeah, it, it is an, an, an important aspect of it. Right. So far, my conversation has been insightful and educational, but I'm curious to hear more firsthand accounts about cases that have been solved in Alaska. I asked Detective McFerrin to describe some of the most challenging and memorable cases he's personally been involved in. When I had a lot of involvement was with the Opal Fairchild case from, I believe it was 86. Uh, an old lady down in Soldotna area that was murdered in her home, and uh, it was it was quite a uh, investigation. Uh, we had to go out of state to Oklahoma to find the suspect. Uh, we were able to eventually link the suspect to another homicide in Kansas, and you know eventually resulted in his conviction here in Alaska. For you know it was it was a lot of hard work. I think. Between myself and some of the other investigators, we had to make three trips down to Oklahoma to contact this guy, and it was it was quite an undertaking. In 2014, we successfully prosecuted a, a murder that occurred in Yakutat in '97. Um, right. Sandra Perry was the victim in that one, and you know that that was a lot of work. Not just I was the original case officer, but you know the colleagues in the cold case unit worked it 
And then I was able to kind of come full circle with that and pick up again and tie up some loose ends on that case to finally get this case prosecuted. Right. So that was pretty rewarding. Right. In your opinion, what's the most common challenge in solving a cold case? Uh, basically just a, a lack of usable evidence. You know, they're just, for whatever reason, just there, it wasn't there. Um, you know, it, and it's, like I said, a lot of it has to do with the environment we work in. Right. Um, and an outdoor scene in Alaska in the wintertime, you're lucky you find anything to work with, yeah. let alone um, some, you know, real tangible evidence that you can follow up on. Physical evidence is it's worth its weight in gold compared to, you know, statements that people make, right. you know, but sometimes that's all you have to go on right. is witness statements and suspect statements. But ideally, it's finding that physical evidence that it's harder if make sure it was properly collected and properly analyzed, and it's, it's that much harder to refute in right. court. Has there ever been a time um, in your career where you know somebody's guilty, uh, but you just can't prove it? You can't prove it in a court of law? Uh, yeah, sure. There's been several. We have a pretty good idea who the individual is, but it, it is what it is. That's, that's our legal system, and that's what we have to work with, and we fully accept that, those limitations. And, you know, I, I really think it, it makes you better. It makes you hard, work harder, right. you know, uh, it, cutting corners and you know, usually ends up uh, in a case evidence getting suppressed or statements getting suppressed. So it's, it's just, you know, it makes it tough, but it, like I said, it makes it better and you, you end up feeling a lot more sure of the result that you, yeah, this, this probably is our guy. And so. All this talk about physical evidence or lack thereof reminds me why I'm really here today to talk about Aaron Gilbert's case. Detective McFerrin has already informed me that he can't disclose specific details about the case due to it still being an active investigation. But that's okay. I can still ask the questions. So I start by asking him to summarize the details surrounding Aaron's disappearance. She went missing. Uh, she was last seen at the uh, Girdwood Forest Fair. Uh, it was July 1st of uh, 95. Um, she had gone down there on a date, um, she was seen at the fair by uh, several individuals. And then sometime during the course of that night, uh, she disappeared. Her uh, family was or found out about her disappearance the following day. They did some searching on their own, eventually reported it to the troopers. Uh, a few days went by and things, as information started to come in, the more strange and suspicious the case looked. And then uh, I believe it was on the 6th of July, the, a full-scale search was launched in the Girdwood area, and um, no sign of her was found. And uh, to date, basically, no, no sign of her has been found. Right. Do you believe a thorough investigation was completed? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, initially, it was Girdwood Patrol who took this case, which is pretty, pretty standard. You know, the, they took the missing persons report. Um, they did what they could at the time, you know, flyers were put up and posted around the area. Uh, the news media was contacted, her picture was put out there, for, and, you know, people were asked to, you know, if you see her, let us know. But as uh, the days went by and information started coming in and obviously no sign of her, 
things started to look uh, stranger and stranger. So uh, at that point, things were handed off to, it was then called the Criminal Investigations Bureau, or it's uh, now ABI. And they started investigating and, um, you know, spent weeks following up, talking to anybody and everybody who had seen her at the fair, family, friends, tried, gathered all the information they could, and uh, un just unfortunately couldn't find her. But yeah, I believe definitely they, they did a very thorough job with what they had. I do know that there were some, some searches that occurred. I mean, are, are you able to say where those searches occurred? Well, just generally in the Girdwood area, um, spots that um, you know someone on foot may have wandered into the the the, the roadways, the the river valleys, the creek valley, you know, creek beds, those areas. You know, the, the terrain there in Girdwood is is pretty uh, pretty rough. Uh, the vegetation that time of year was very thick. It's it's right. very difficult to move around in that area if you get off the road system or off a trail. So. Right. Um, can, can you expand on like, what were some of the resources that were put into those searches? Um, I, I believe there's uh, several dog teams were involved and a, and a helicopter was used and regular ground searchers. You know, pretty much a standard okay. ground search was done. Okay. Why do you think Aaron's case hasn't been able to be solved? Well, uh, the main reason is just never, never, she's never been found. There's been no body found. I believe she's deceased, but until a body's found, it's going to be very difficult to say what happened. Did she meet with foul play? Did she meet with some kind of unfortunate accident? What? Until the remains are found, we're kind of stuck because essentially there's just no evidence to show one way or another what happened to her. I mean, based on, on your investigation, do you believe you have an idea of what might have happened? Like I said, it's hard to tell. I mean, I, we've kind of narrowed down the window of when whatever happened happened based on the people we've talked to and the information we've gathered, but I, I honestly just can't say. We just don't know right. what happened to her. It's a, a number of scenarios could, could have transpired, and we just don't know. You know, Aaron's case is a tough one, just because there's just not much there to work with. Right. Okay. I'm waiting to get shut down here, by the way. But, um, do, do you have any suspects or persons of interest in this case? I don't know, like using those terms because they get, they have different meanings for different right. people. But obviously, um, you know, we, we talked to the, the individual that was, you know, took her out on the date. We, we've talked to the people who saw her there, we, you know, the people who know her. Uh, we've, we've gotten what information we can out of these people, and every now and then uh, someone else will come up with something new and we'll talk to them. But to say, you know, since we don't know for sure what happened, right. you know, we can't throw around terms like suspect or person right. of interest. Okay. That's good for me to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's, I have this question, like, what do you need to solve Ernest's case? But it sounds like what you need is remains. Yes, human remains would definitely, uh, definitely need to be found. Uh, and, you know, there's, they, they definitely looked for any other physical evidence they thought they might find, and it just wasn't there. And, um, you know, without finding her body, there's just not much more to do. Although my conversation with Detective McFerrin has been educational and insightful, I can tell I won't be leaving with a lot of new details about Aaron's case. 
So I asked him a question that could be helpful for listeners of the podcast. How can the public be of assistance in helping to solve Aaron's case? Well, I, I mean, obviously, if somebody knows something about what happened, who she may have been with or where she may have gone, you know, we need to know that. You know, unfortunately, though, you know, a lot of, you know, I heard something from so-and-so who's heard something from so-and-so. Right. The, the rumor mills. That's not helpful. Well, yeah, it, sometimes it can be. A lot of times it, it isn't. I, you know, I don't want to discourage people from, from ca- calling in if they think they have something. But at the same time, you know, be aware of your source. Where are you getting this information? You know, is it someone, if you're, did you hear something from someone who maybe would have been in the know? Or is this just something that you heard through the grapevine? But, um, you know, we're open 24-7, so if you got something, call us. Right. And I'll look into, look into it, and if there's something there, we'll act on it. If, if it's something we've already looked at, you know, we'll let you know. We'll definitely talk to anybody who, who wants to share any information. Again, I don't want to discourage people, and people like sometimes want to keep things confidential. But sometimes, you know, as things go out, they may not be able to, to do that eventually. But, you know, uh, you never know. We'll, we'll take anything we can and see if it leads it somewhere. And obviously, if someone's walking around in the woods and finds some human remains, by all means, contact us immediately. was able to sit down and have a face-to-face conversation with Detective McFerrin. He's a professional yet likable detective, and it's clear he's dedicated to his job based on a storied career that's lasted 30 years. Although our conversation still leaves me with a multitude of questions, one detail has been crystallized. Aaron's case has been much more difficult to solve because no trace of her has ever been found. Compound that with limited evidence and a case file that's locked away, you're pretty much left where you started. It feels like a guessing game. But I'm determined to see this through and to try and learn as much as I can about what might have happened to Aaron Gilbert. So I'll be sticking to the timeline of Aaron's disappearance and try and learn more about the searches that took place in Girdwood after Aaron went missing. It feels daunting and it feels dark, but like the coming spring sun... I'm hoping there might be some light at the end of this tunnel. If you or anyone you know has any information about the disappearance of Aaron Marie Gilbert, contact the Alaska State Troopers at 907-269-5511. 
Alaska Unsolved is written and produced with original music by me, Evan Phillips, with additional music composition by James Glaves. The editing and post-production is by Pod Peak, providing creative audio solutions for podcasters, filmmakers, and brands. You can learn more about the work they do at podpeak.com. Hey, if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media. And if you enjoy Alaska Unsolved, if you want to support the work we do from the ground up, you might consider becoming a monthly backer on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Alaska Unsolved and you can sign up there. All right, friends. Well, thanks for listening today. Take care of yourselves and we'll see you next time on Alaska Unsolved. Standing in this hallway, thinking. That